0: Hello and welcome to The Chair's Corner from the Department of Medicine at the University of North Carolina. This is our series for patients focused on organ transplant. And today, we'll get to hear from a person who's had a lung transplant, Andy Nelson. Andy's story is relatively uh, recent with respect to his transplantation. He received his lung transplant a little over a year ago in 2016, He's also a UNC employee, so some of us have known him as a colleague for some time and have helped in his care as a patient. So today I'll get to ask Andy about getting sick, what was it like waiting for new lungs, and what has his recovery been like? And I can tell you I've seen Andy in the gym, so I know (laughs) that to a certain extent his recovery is going well. So welcome, Andy. Thank you, Dr. Falk, it's good to be here. So let's just start, tell us about who you are and what was your life like before you even thought about a lung transplant?
1: Sure, so I'll give you the story of my uh, adult life, so to speak, so I, after graduating from college at Clemson University in finance and accounting, um, also picked up a CPA license both in North and South Carolina. I started my career in healthcare so large healthcare systems worked in corporate accounting corporate finance also worked in strategic planning business development for a couple of health systems and prior to coming to unc in 2007 i was working at the university of kentucky healthcare so my wife and i my wife and i've been married 23 years uh, we have four daughters throughout my career so t- 20 year career i'd never had a sick day i've been healthy and fit in my uh, entire adult life, again, committed to that exercise and, and eating healthy, uh, never smoked, and uh, again, active. And our family was very active and, and healthy. So in terms of health encounters, I really had no encounter other than my professional life. So I've looked at healthcare through the lens of data of and uh, new patients um, and patients in my family. But was foreign to me to even think about being sick. So if you move all the way up to 2013, um, I had no sign or symptom of anything and had not been to a doctor in many years. Didn't have a primary care physician at the time.
0: And then boom. Yes.
1: Well, the, the boom was more subtle. For me, my first remembrance of an issue was a subtle cough that didn't seem to go away. It was dry. So the onset was sort of a, an incessant cough, and I can't even remember the specific dates as as to when it got bad enough for me to notice, but my wife and daughters noticed it. And I said, well, it's probably just allergies. Uh, so we're in mid to late December, or mid to late 2013, And my wife and daughter said, you need to go see a doctor. I said, I'm fine. It wasn't affecting my workouts. It wasn't affecting my work at the time. I could take some cough suppressants and get through the day or get through a meeting or presentations. Uh, So in December of 2013, that's when I started waking my wife up coughing, and she said, enough's enough you need to see somebody, and, and there started the hunt for a primary care physician. And um, I went to see one of our primary care physicians at, at UNC, and I didn't know what I was getting into at the time. He asked me, when's the last time you've seen a physician? And I said, well... Um, I was five. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's been quite a while. I said, I do get my annual flu shots, but uh, other than that, I don't see it. So he, he uh, gave me the surprise of the full Monty physical exam, Uh, at the time. And um, as he assessed me, he said it probably is just allergies. So we started with allergy medication. So again, we're in 2014, maybe the beginning of the year. I try allergy medication for about a month. And I said, this isn't helping at all. I'm having to still take cough medicine. I'm coughing now throughout the day. Uh, No shortness of breath and not affecting me in any other way. And he said, well, you might have adult onset asthma. So we actually tried some inhalers at that point. That didn't help relieve anything either. And he began to get suspect. And this is where I really value the role of the primary care physician and really doing his due diligence. He went ahead and did an in-office spirometry test, so a breathing test, to see how my lung function was. And by this point, I could tell I might have... Lost a little bit in the gym, but I attribute it to my geriatric phase of life, or what I felt like I was moving into, sort of a, an older phase, and maybe I'm just going through some issues. Well, how old are you? I'm 47 years so old. So geriatric, yeah, yeah at not the, quite, tender not
0: tender age not of, uh, <laughs> yes, of, uh, 44, 45. Doesn't like make think, a lot of sense.
1: I thought I was aging in dog years at, uh, at that uh, at that point, but uh, and plus having new kids at home, maybe that was uh, a part of the reason, lack of sleep and so forth, but. He does a spirometry test, and, and he says, Andy, it looks like you've lost some lung function, maybe down to 90%, 80%. And he said, I'm going to send you in for a chest X-ray. So right after the chest X-ray, probably within an hour, he calls, and he says, Andy, you've got some uh, scarring, it looks like, around your alveolar tissue or tissue in the lungs. He said, you looks like you probably have an interstitial lung disease, and he went on to explain this is really a a broad
0: spectrum of lung diseases over 200 and how quickly did you in your healthcare uh role quickly start googling uh, what that uh, was yes that and that's that's a, a part of my
1: professional life is triaging clinical cohorts and and understanding them so as you as a physician if you give me a diagnosis or a condition or a procedure, then oftentimes it's up to me to understand the, you know, as much as I can, the the nuances and the mechanisms and so forth. So I started reading a lot about interstitial lung disease and I I knew it was a a broad spectrum. And since my only symptom was a dry cough, I I it's not that I was in denial. I just thought, well, it's I could have this the rest of my life and be okay, is, is what I thought. And uh, at this point, though, is when I go to see a specialist. Dr. Lobo put me through a lot of tests, uh, in chamber pulmonary function tests, and and then ultimately uh, I went to get a high resolution CT scan, and that was enough to confirm a diagnosis. And uh, you know, I distinctly remember him mentioning the words idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And uh, not a Latin scholar, but I knew enough to know that idiopathic didn't sound good to me. It sounded like we don't know what we're doing and where things are, and uh, I could piece together the other parts.
0: So idiopathic is used a lot. Idiopathic means we don't know the cause. We, the medical community, don't actually recognize in, a, in an individual patient and in an individual person what the underlying cause or mechanism of diseases. But you know in your case... Pulmonary lung fibrosis scarring, scarring of the lung, for uncertain cause. What happens when you, as a patient, are given that word idiopathic? It, you look it up and you see that it's unknown. But yeah. wh- what emotions run through you? Yeah, this Brian? is this is this is
1: a very interesting part of the story because for so long I had been in a, a outside the snow globe of patient care. I had not been a patient. And so I remember when he mentioned that and, and it unlike the diagnosis of an interstitial lung disease, this was a more serious conversation where he said that Andy, this disease is progressive, it's terminal, and there's no cause and no cure. And I asked him what you know, what what kind of timelines are we talking about? And the average post diagnosis survival rate for a person that's diagnosed with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis is three to five years Uh, dr lobo qualified that by saying the majority of people are diagnosed older than me and often caught later in the diagnosis and since i didn't have any comorbid conditions or other health issues that i could have this disease for a long time and even though there's not a treatment, potentially there could be one. So I had I had some some mixed emotions. There's probably some denial that was baked into that. I, I was trying to be as as uh, practical as I could. But even at this time, you have to think the only symptom I have is a the dry cough. cough.
0: Yeah, and you can have all the CT scans in the world, but at the end of the day, if you're feeling okay and you can go about your activities of daily living except for a cough and maybe being a little short of breath in the gym, it's hard to come to grips with those words, uh, I'm in trouble when I feel so well.
1: That's right. Yeah. That's right. So um, the one of the emotional, um, I guess, obstacles or issues that arose was as I drove home to talk to my wife and my daughters, who at the time were 15, 12, 4, and 2. So here's my wife, and I'm having to pre-qualify my statement by, by saying that I'm going to tell you about a diagnosis, but you know, I it's it's I'm, I may not fit the standard category. I've just got a dry cough. I could have this for a long time, and I knew my wife would do the same thing. She would Google it immediately. So I tried to be um, uh, measured in my words to her, and so I remember telling her. And there was, you know, the visceral shock, and and again, all, and I could tell where her mind was going down these paths of. So what exactly can we do and what can be done and what do you mean there's no cause for this? And But you only have a cough and, and wrestling going through these stages of, of emotion. And my daughters, the older two, old enough to understand that uh, the runway may not be long for their dad. And so we went through a, a, a long process and so we have a strong family. I mean, this is one of those key components of support when people talk about healing in a patient experience you you can you can't understate the network of support that a patient may or may not have at home and i was very fortunate and so all of this even at the time where we were going through the sort of the trauma of the diagnosis it drew us closer much closer as a, as a family, but again, we're we're in we're, we're in May of two thousand fourteen, and I've just been diagnosed, and I just have a cough.
0: So, what advice would you give then to somebody uh, who's listening, who is perhaps feeling a little bit worse than what you were, maybe a short of breath now, uh, doesn't know if things are going to get better, always hoping things are going to get better, but. Mm-hmm. you know that they probably won't. What do you tell them uh, with respect to how to control or deal or get through those those emotions of all the uncertainty that you've described?
1: Sure. So I, I think, you know, with all of our lives, uh, we have components. We have a, a spiritual and emotional relational component, a physical component. And so when I think about how... We and I coped during the season. Uh, perspective was critical. Bathing in sort of this reality, we were—I was aware of my mortality, certainly—and uh, and we all are to some degree. You know, we all can say it, tomorrow may be our last, but—but but to be again viscerally aware of that, and to have meaning and purpose and hope in every moment. I didn't see pain or suffering or. A lot of the things that that were around me, even being in healthcare, is meaningless. I see them as meaningful in my experience, and what I would tell people as I've gone through the process of being either I'm You know, I'm on eight liters of oxygen per day, 24 hours a day. I was either going to suffocate or go into cardiac arrest. And there were many days where I would lay on the floor. I could not catch my breath. So once the disease progressed. So for those people who are listening, I progressed very rapidly. I've gone through some serious events through that process. Yes, it is painful, but there is hope in every moment. And the the hope, again, is that life is meaning and purposeful even in those painful moments people that are going through this disease, um, you're, you're not alone. It's good to get uh, sounding boards out there, people who have walked the path to some degree. Everybody's story is very different And what I've found, whether it's IPF or those who have had lung transplant for cystic fibrosis, et cetera. All of us are very different and we're in different well, stages of life and we're processing things differently. But ubiquitously, I would say there's a a transcendent component that says that life has meaning and purpose, and that gives us the ability to look and appreciate this next breath and this breath that we have. Not to focus on the why me, but what, what can I do with right now? And the disease itself for me, and I'm, I'm hoping I can encourage people, help me to deeply appreciate the moment. Uh, I, I had heard many people talk and, and read a lot about being present and mindful, or what does that mean to be present and mindful? And and then a, a quote that nothing educates us quite so well as a shock. Well, for me, the shock of the disease and being in the moment as a patient, you really get a sense of appreciating that. And you you can easily spiral into a self-pity if you're not careful. And, and why is this happening to me? And my expectations were not high i i i'm a human i i realized i live in a you know in this mortal frame so to speak and yet my hope was very high in every moment and whether i got one more breath or one more year or one more decade with my family i was i was just i was going to hope prayerfully hope for the best and then uh seek to invest those moments well. And it's not its not an easy road. But again, I think adversity teaches us a lot. So this was a, a teacher for me. It will be a teacher for those who walk through it who can maintain that perspective.
0: So you have this uh, long and remarkable expertise, truly wonderful expertise in, in understanding finances. And there are two financial components to what you've just been through. One is the financial component of, oh my goodness, I'm the financial breadwinner mm-hmm. and then oh my goodness i'm thinking about a lung transplant how am i going to actually pull this off how am i going to pay for it so let's right. do with the first one of these okay how did you deal with the whole process of trying to work then as your shortness of breath as you point out lying mm-hmm. on the ground trying to just on 8 liters of oxygen not being able to work what recommendations would you give for somebody listening as to how to wend their way through the the uh, understanding of some financial security for your family when, whether you were planning for it or not, in a relatively short amount of time, you couldn't uh, do the employment that you had?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I can remember toward the end of 2015, being unable to walk across campuses and go to meetings and things like that. And that's when I had gotten really sick. And I actually went and talked uh, with some folks at work about potential opportunities to bridge with some project work there so I could continue some employment again if I was still my mind could work. And fortunately, if, if you're in a profession where you have to work with your hands or you have to move around a lot and you have IPF, it will be impossible.
0: And one just has to be able to say to oneself, no matter how hard I push, this is not a mind issue. This is a body issue. And there's no way, if, as part of my employment, physical activity is required. It's not possible.
1: It is not. You, you, will, you will be in a right place to file for disability at that point you will need to look at your options and if you've had disability insurance in the past you'll want to talk to your to your insurance about
0: that but and if you don't have that insurance this is when the social security disability actually right. has a has a very right role
1: yes this is this is the right role for disability benefits and the provision of those. I think just stewardship of healthcare care would, would say that. And to give people and enlighten people into IPF on a practical daily basis, if I stood up with eight liters of oxygen or more, if I would just stand up and walk slowly across the room, I would desaturate, meaning I wasn't getting oxygen to my body and my heart rate would sometimes spike up to 140 or 150, and I would have to lay down. I couldn't catch my breath. It's a restrictive disease. So I took showers sitting down, and I just I couldn't, I couldn't breathe. And it got so bad that I had cardiac issues from February of 2016 to June in that stent where I deteriorated very rapidly. It was a, a long journey to be sick enough to be on the transplant list and not too sick to not be on there. And this is probably something that even for me, even though I had worked with some of the folks here in Solid Organ Transplant and, and knew some of these issues, it was hard to, to understand the process as a patient until I was one. You know, I was very fortunate that I could work right up until transplant because for me, the work that I do I was still able to do the, the cerebral work or the mental work. And as long as I had a laptop and I could sit still on the oxygen, I could work. And that provided some sustenance there. But when you're talking about the economics of a transplant, even with insurance, all of the costs that went into my pre-care, just with IPF, even if you have insurance, it's a lot of out-of-pocket expense. And you'll want to work with your insurance case manager potentially if they have one. Once I got sick enough to be put on the transplant list, this is where I was very fortunate here at the UNC um and most transplant centers you have a transplant financial coordinator and they were able to unpack a lot of information and resources. And of course you can get them from associations. You can get them from, you know, if it's kidney, you can get them from the Kidney Foundation or the Lung Association or UNOS, which is the United Network of Organ uh sharing. So the information's there, but in terms of managing the finances, it's really contextualized by the insurance. Are you a Medicare patient? And if so, you'll almost have to work through the Social Security office to know what coverage you do or don't have if you have traditional Medicare. If you have one of the other plans, you'll have to work through those insurance companies to know what the coverage is. And they get very specific, and this this almost takes another full-time job, by the way, to manage the finances. And if I had my wife here, she would, she's an accountant, she would, she would say the same thing. It, it, it takes a lot of hours and effort just to manage the financial piece, even from an insurance side. There are options for fundraising that, that you can have, and there are some foundations out there that can help provide financial assistance, too. Uh, but, but you're going to want to put all that time and effort into understanding, based on your insurance, what those options are.
0: And a financial counselor does come with a transplant program, which is of help. Yes. You had this period of of really difficult uh, several weeks of feeling okay, then not feeling okay, and then uh, finally getting the call that there were some lungs for you. What was that like, and what was the immediate sort of transplant period like?
1: We... uh found out we were gonna be put on the transplant list, or I found I was gonna be put on the transplant list in late June of two thousand sixteen. And what we had heard and in the even the support groups that we had here at, at UNC was that you could have a number of what are called dry runs, meaning if you did get a call to come in for a lung transplant that it may not be a match. And so you may have to go home and wait and they'll they'll do a workup. So I can remember getting the phone call on Saturday, July the 2nd of 2016 with my family, probably around five or six o'clock at night. And they said, we have some lungs. And this was only eight days after being on the wait list. So I was not expecting a phone call that soon. I thought it would be several months. But they said, you need to come down. And at this point, if I bring you to that specific moment where my wife, my four daughters, and I are having a conversation. And I know that if this is indeed a match, and I do go into surgery, it's a major surgery uh, to have that. But I, I can remember the mixed emotions there as we, my wife and I left to come to UNC, where we're, in in one sense, joyful and, and thankful for, for this to come, because it, it could mean uh, life for me, extended life. Uh, on, on the other side, you don't know if you're going to come out of that major surgery. I mean, there's there are these thoughts that come into your head. So, I remember coming in and getting worked up uh, in the in the OR. And as a, again, as a patient, and you you know in your head what is about to happen. You know the the surgery and that they're going to go in and open up your chest and take out. Lungs and put new lungs in, and you know, it's a major surgery, and, and it's the, the prayerful hope that I'll, I'll come out of this and, and, and wake up on the other side. And, and very fortunate and blessed and thankful that I did, and some wonderful surgeons here at UNC uh, providing that care. And it takes an orchestra in transplant to care for a patient, so you, you have a whole body of care providers doing this. And when I woke up, in my first memorable moments after my transplant, I can say that the that first breath was remarkable. I did not realize how sick I was until I took a breath with those new lungs, and it was very different to be able to inhale that much slowly. I'd been so restricted for so long, and I really didn't realize it.
0: After transplantation, uh, uh, tell us a little bit about the recovery. You've You've had some setbacks uh, along the way here, uh, but uh, you're doing well now. Walk us through that that period of time.
1: Sure. So after transplant, and I remember being coached well, that once you're out of surgery, you need to start moving as much as you can. And even with all the tubes, I had four chest tubes, I had catheters, IVs, and I looked like a, a a cell tower full of IV fluids and so forth coming into me when I was walking down the hall. But probably on day two or so post-op, I was walking. And if you go to UNC, there's a long hallway on the fourth floor. And uh, I used to be an avid golfer a long time ago, and I could walk off a yard and it's 150 yards end to end. So I would measure my, my steps there. And I started walking around the unit and then I'd walk the walk the the hallway and then I got where I was doing a mile at a time and then by the time I left 12 days after being uh, after having surgery I was walking about four miles a day in the hospital uh, with a walker and after I left the hospital and there's so many challenges when you're when you're in the hospital in general it's hard to get sleep obviously when you're in there but I can remember going home and finally, Resting and feeling like I could rest, and and uh, again, I knew the best thing I could do at that point in time was to to try and move, try to exercise where I could, and I would put put on my mask and get on the treadmill and 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 just walk. I'd say for the first three months, I I was doing extremely well after transplant, and then in October of 2016, I had a low grade fever. It was a Sunday morning and. Well, it turns out I had a pulmonary embolism, which is a blood clot in the lungs. I had acute rejection of my lung transplant and a possible fungal infection at the time. And and again, the orchestra played again. So I had all the clinicians in and out of my room and physicians treating me. And, and I was in the hospital for a week then <clears throat> and uh, recovered from that. I was back in the hospital in February f- for another infection. And infection is one of the leading causes of of death after, uh, and and, rege- or, and even of chronic rejection after uh, surgery. So after February, and since February, I've, I've actually been on a wonderful trajectory, and I remember distinctly, Dr. Falk, about six months ago being at the UNC Wellness Center, and you and I were talking, and you asked me when it was that I received my transplant. But I told you there was some magic window that people talked about after a year that, you'd start feeling better or feeling some semblance of normalcy. And you looked at me and and almost the, you know, prognosticating a little bit, but it, uh, the prophetic Falk says, you just said one word, you said October. And here we are, um, we're in October. And as of last month, my lung capacity, my lung function right now is at a hundred percent. So my pulmonary function tests have been improving every month that I'm going in I'm going in for tests consistently lab tests and so forth to dial in the medications that's another piece of the transplant story that most people will need to understand is that you're you're a walking pharmacy and you want to make sure you're compliant with your meds and that you're letting the you know letting the physicians dial you in on those because the the side effects will probably be the the one thing you you wrestle with the most
0: how do you keep yourself healthy now because you you look and you are remarkably healthy now.
1: There are several factors to that. I think one is, is uh, a bit cliche, but uh, diet and exercise is, is fundamental. I mean, you, you want to be as healthy as you can with your diet and uh, exercise as much as possible, cardi- cardiorespiratory exercise. But the other side of this, especially with a lung transplant, and, and lungs are the only organ that aren't encapsulated so we breathe in. I'm breathing in now air, and you, you're you exposed a lot. My white blood cell count, I'm immunosuppressed, and you, you have to be aware of this. So I think hygiene, uh, a, a real sensitivity to keeping your hands clean, the environment with my wife and my daughters, that environment's clean, and not being overly exposed. I mean, it's not walking around as a hypochondriac and in fear of, being outside and so forth, but it's just being sensitive, not going into large crowds and making sure that if anyone's sick, to try to try to stay away from that.
0: You talked very eloquently about what it was like to tell your wife that you had this potentially terminal disease called idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And she's uh, lived through your whole period of time where you really had a struggle to take another breath, and then now the transplant era. This whole experience just underlines the critical importance of a of a caregiver, an advocate who is mm-hmm. there with you one step after another. In your case, one breath after another. What advice would you give to the patient about the value and the importance of uh, making sure that your spouse is able to communicate.
1: I think this is critically important for patients, especially as they're going through this. And you mentioned two of the most important concepts or paradigms for a spouse, a partner, somebody that's supporting you through this the role of caregiver and advocate is it was evolving for my wife. She, again, she had never been in a role like this. And so it added tremendous stress, as you can imagine, to her life emotionally and physically, also as a mom of four and having to to manage that as well. And so I think any way that and as a patient, it's hard. It's hard to be the encouragement that that person needs as a caregiver, but the caregiver needs support. Whether this comes from other family or friends or faith and through a church or whatever, this, this is where y- you can't understate the value of the emotional support that's needed to underpin not just the patient, but the support structure and network of care for that patient because it's easy to get emotionally spent throughout this process, especially when this is not acute. This is a chronic condition, and then you have a transplant, and then it's chronic after. So it's the sustainability and finding ways to and, and allowing, and for my wife or her, if she was here, she'd probably say allowing herself to be cared for through this process it's easy to get isolated in this and we were very fortunate and blessed to to have the family and the friends that we had and i could spend hours talking about all of the ways that uh, our family friends people at work those we knew those at our church just really rallied around us during this time and and it's it's a tremendous part of the care and healing, and quality of life for the patient and for their family.
0: When we've had uh, conversations with uh, couples or pairs, if I may use that word, there and, and have interviewed them separately and then together, there are a lot of lessons that one learns. There are a cascade of emotions of, of fear that one's going to lose, in, in this case, the patient. Uh, there's uh, anger quite frankly, Mm -hmm. that uh, it's, why is this happening uh, Mm -hmm. to me, why is this happening to us? There's guilt by even having that Mm -hmm. emotion. That's right. Uh, There is exactly what you've described, the need for caregiver care, which is incredibly important because caregivers become exhausted, especially if they're having to be the wage earner and a caregiver for the patient and a parent Mm -hmm. if you have children. So, and then the caregiver feels at once the need for care, but at the other hand, guilty that they're taking up care from the patient. That's and right. then there's depression mm-hmm. in trying to get through all of this and having those conversations about those kinds of emotions, uh, mm-hmm. fear, guilt, anger, exhaustion, depression are really important conversations to have as one goes through these, these phases
1: you 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 bring up something that it it just it came into my mind part of the part of the orchestra again of care and transplant care here and for me it was the psychiatric piece and meeting with some of our psychiatrists here and even working through this and and preparing us even before the transplant and and after for some of the things that 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 we would face on that front so it was it's, a, it's good to have those sounding boards there and the third-party objective sounding boards to help you through that process.
0: What advice would you give to all of the physicians who took care of you that would make your experience better? You've been very complimentary, but I've been a patient here too, and there are certain things that I really would like physicians to do differently. Yes, Give me an example of the biggest thing you'd like them to hear.
1: Yes, so I I've, I've thought a lot about this, and <clears throat> as a as a patient, I tried to. You can't distance yourself from the professional life that you live in too. And so, as we talk about quality in healthcare and patient experience, and and provider satisfaction, and all all the aims we have in in healthcare, and I thought about my experience. I thought coming into this experience as a patient, I would be quite rational. I was very wrong.
0: I don't think anybody who's a patient and really ill is rational all the whole time. You can't, you can't cope that way.
1: No, and I, I thought, right, we're, I, I'm not in the clinical sciences, but I have deep appreciation for it, and I, I thought that I would be data driven and fact based as I went through as a patient. Uh, well, I wasn't at all. I inferred quality of a physician, of a nurse primarily through two things, and they're stated often, but one, and I'm choosing this word very carefully, one is kindness. Sincere kindness. If you as a physician or a group of physicians, as we have sometimes many physicians in the room, if if kindness is present, then there's, for me, you're a great physician. I don't know what your qualifications are, but it communicated a lot to me and to my wife when we were there. And the other one is, and again, we, we say compassion. If physicians can allow themselves to pause and walk down the hypothetical and just feel, compassionately feel and empathetically feel what that patient's going through and and, and extend kindness, you're going to find that even people who think, I think I'm data-driven, in fact, they it wasn't that. I... I Competence was implicit to me. But I, I would watch nurses come into the room and doctors and sometimes, and it's difficult, they might bring the stress of the day in the room with them and they wore it. And I could tell, and that was not a good experience for me when I went through that. And I, I walked away and I, I I thought deeply about that. I thought about why am I thinking that way? You know, that just seems irrational. But no, it made a lot of sense that the kindness and compassion is a tremendous component of healing and of a patient stay, especially when they're in the inpatient setting. That is, to me, one of the most challenging settings in healthcare is as a patient going through that experience and then having the all of the uncertainty and maybe lack of communication sometimes that can happen as a patient and not knowing what's going on and when it's going to happen, or it's, they'll be in here in 15 minutes and they're here in two hours.
0: For those of you listening, you should know that Andy turned red when he started that (laughs) conversation and now he's back to his normal complexion. It's really a visceral response when caregivers Somehow forget that the reason why we all went into healthcare was to deliver kind, compassionate, high-quality care, and everybody talks about quality improvement, but the quality that needs to be improved first are the qualities you described: kindness and compassion. That's exactly right. Uh, thank you, Andy, for for sharing your story with us.
1: Thank you, Dr. Falk.
0: Thanks so much to our listeners for tuning in to our next episode where we'll discuss the heart transplant program. If you enjoy these series, you can subscribe to The Chairs Corner on iTunes or like us on Facebook. Thanks so much.